sort of racism that I've experienced in my youth, it was definitely there, but I don't want to make it seem like it was black on white. It was, I would say it's almost the same racism America's experiencing on the whole of liberal on people who happen to be white or not them. You know, because for some people, uh, their view is that anything that gets, this is a view of an extremist, by the way, anything that gets their system into place is good because in the end, those people in country X will start living better. Led into the wars of the 1900s, liberalism, communism, and fascism, uh, to be honest, they were all, were, are uh, all anti-Christian in a way. So uh, that shouldn't be surprising, but uh, the church didn't see it coming because he wanted to burn Russia like fuel to create a world fire, to create a world revolution. He did not care how many people here had to die, how much Russia had to be destroyed. He had this globalist mission. I'm sure there are plenty of them who see the United States as firewood. With the global economy being in shambles and central bankers moving towards a reset, it's never been a better time to protect your wealth by owning precious metals. Contact Andy at milesfranklin.com. Tell him Sarah sent you. He promised me he will guarantee you the lowest price anywhere in the country. Remember, email Andy at milesfranklin.com and tell him Sarah sent you. It's never been a better time to protect your future than now. Welcome to Business Game Changers. I'm Sarah Westall. I have Tim Kirby coming to the show, and he is an interesting fella. He was raised in Cleveland, Ohio, and is an American, and then was pretty disillusioned with the United States and ended up moving to Russia. And now he's a Russian citizen. He's actually a well-known journalist in Russia. And I asked him, you know, why were you disillusioned here? And he explains a story. It's a very interesting story. He grew up with a lot of discrimination and he explains how that happened. And then we really get into uh, the history and what's going on in Russia. And he explains, um, he explains it from inside, like, very few people can. He's one of the few people in the world that understands both the United States and Russia from inside. And so this is a really good, really good conversation. And if you really want to see more of him, he has a show that's connected with RT. He used to have a show on RT. And now he has a show that's connected with RT that does like a, more on tourism. It's lighthearted. And then he has one that's really hardcore. It's called Tim Kirby Hardcore, and that one's on, all on geopolitical news and going-ons in the world. But before we get into this interview, I want to talk about Defy Time, which is the world's most effective telomere lengthener. And people who've been listening to my show for a while know that I use uh, Bill and Dr. Bill Andrews' telomere, Defy Time lengthener, but they have a special going on in May where you get a pack of facial masks, the telomere lengthener gets deep into your pores and it's a $300 value. And if you buy the telomere pills, the capsules, then you get a free pack of these masks. On top of that, using my code, SARAVIP15, you get 15% off of the capsules. And that works in conjunction with their new buyer. So they have always have this discount that you can use if you're a first time buyer. 
So you can use that in conjunction with that. Otherwise, always use this 15% discount. So that goes on until the end of May. So the other thing I want to tell you is I've been loading up exclusive videos. I've loaded up about four. I've loaded up four on Ebonier and SarahWestel.tv. So if you're interested in that, go to SarahWestel.com under subscribe and you can sign up for Ebonier or SarahWestel.tv and all of my exclusives. And then you'll see stuff that you do not see anywhere in the media. And we cover some topics that a lot of times I don't, I don't want to talk about publicly. So you can see that there. And also while you're at it, make sure you sign up for my newsletter because that gives you all the notifications. So anyways, let's get into this really good conversation with Tim Kirby. Hi, Tim. Welcome to the program. Hi. Nice to be here. You are an interesting character. You're an American who moved Correct. to Russia. You were on Russian television, RT, and now you have a, a another program that's on one of their uh, subsidiaries. Mm -hmm. Why did you move to Russia? Why? Well, I can tell you one thing. Uh, as since you're an American, I can tell you I was born and raised in Cleveland. Uh, if that means anything for you, uh, not exactly uh, the nicest environment. And um, uh, as you would know, um, depending on where someone grows up, they could have either seen one side of America or the other side. And I definitely saw sort of that other side. Uh, basically, uh, yeah, uh, when I got older, I was sort of uh, forced to kind of make the choice because I grew up in a uh, majority black neighborhood. In fact, a pretty strong majority uh, black neighborhood. And um, that was kind of the culture I grew up in. Uh, but so at the same time, when I got older, I always felt kind of uh, alien uh, going into the sort of like white picket fence, uh, middle class world. But at the same time, uh, when you look like the way I do and you grow up in a black uh, neighborhood, uh, they make it clear every day that you're an outsider. So I kind of was stuck with a bit of an identity crisis of not really being welcome, particularly anywhere. You and were discriminated against. Of course. <laughs> Come like on. nonstop for being a white person. Interesting. Okay, uh, keep not, going. Not, 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 and not only, I would say nonstop. Nonstop is a, is a strong word. I can tell you one thing that did happen that uh, for sure. Uh, during a uh, lesson, it was English class. I always had problems with the English teachers. I don't know why. Uh, but uh, basically, uh, during that class, uh, my one buddy, Steve, black guy, uh, good, good guy, he kept uh, messing with me when I was trying to read out loud to the class. Uh, that was one thing he really loved to do. You know how guys rib on each yeah, other, right? Yeah. And uh, I was just turned around. I told him, oh, Steve, go to hell. Back off, man. Like, it, 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 like I stopped reading. I told him basically that. Steve, go to hell. Okay. And I was written up for a suspension. Uh, during that class, uh, a different girl who was, uh, let's just say, uh, not as physically, uh, not very European looking, uh, told the teacher himself to go F himself. She got nothing. Okay, after that, uh, they sat me down for a while. They uh, sat me down to talk to two people. I didn't quite understand who they were. So this is the problem. When you're a teenager, you're not thinking. Uh, but uh, basically, I kind of wanted to appeal this because I got an out-of-school suspension, right? And uh, at the time, I was one of the people who was definitely more on track to go to college, and I didn't like this whole thing about having a suspension, especially a suspension based on something kind of uh, – uh, that makes me look like I have a bad character. So I was really worried sure. about my college. I was also worried because uh, in my school system, uh, if you were suspended, uh, you got zeros on everything in every oh. class, right? So it ruins your grades. Uh, it was a two-day suspension. So 
might not have ruined my grades, but I don't know. I was just worried about it. But again, I was a teenager. Teenagers are dumb. So anyways, they sat me down in front of these two people who I guess were representing the school. It wasn't the principal. It wasn't the vice principal. Two white people, to, to be very clear about that. And I told them that this is a situation. I was like, look, this is completely unfair. This is ridiculous. If you're going to punish me, you've got to punish this girl too. Also, uh, okay, I'm sorry. Just let me go to school. Uh, why are we doing this? And basically they said outright and not ironically, not with a dose of sympathy, not with a smidgen of understanding. They said that there's essentially a racial quota on suspensions. Oh my gosh. And they really needed me to be suspended. Oh my gosh. And they felt that that was perfectly reasonable. So the uh, long story short of that is I just went to school anyways, because our school was a big bureaucratic nightmare in the ghetto. So no one really knew or noticed. And so my grades weren't affected because I just went anyway. <laughs> you just went anyway. They were so incompetent. Yeah, well, there were 2,500 so people there. They didn't notice. Yeah. Oh, that's funny. So, I mean, that, that's kind of the thing. So, because uh, it's very, when we talk about these things about this, uh, uh, sort of racism that I've experienced in my youth, it was definitely there, but I don't want to make it seem like it was black on white. It was, I would say it's almost the same racism America's experiencing on the whole of liberal on people who happen to be white or not them. Oh, you mean like the... the... Because the people who the people who enforced that absurd out-of-school suspension, they weren't black. The policies didn't come from black. So it's more like the liberals against, and it's not even liberal because classical liberalism isn't what we're experiencing right now. It is like some no. weird uh, mutation of, I don't know what it is because it's not classical liberalism because I have a lot of people who come on my show who consider themselves classical liberals who are called right-wing extremists, <laughs> you know, and they're not. They're mm -hmm. just classical liberals but those people are also ca categorized as right-wing nut jobs right now. Anybody that's not on that far, you know, we say a far left, maybe far left is the right word. I don't know what word is because this is a whole new spectrum of classification as far as I'm concerned. And yeah. they've gone off the rails. And anybody who's just kind of, I was always in the middle and now I'm a far, I'm, considered a far right nut job and i know i am and i'm like i'm just in the middle and i bet you in russia i wouldn't be considered on the right i wouldn't be considered that conservative you guys are more of a over there it's more of a conservative kind of in the 50s right isn't it kind of uh, a little bit more i would say the one thing though is um uh it, it's sort of weird the organization is so different that it's really hard to comment about so in America, we have the we've at least in the past had the left and the right, and they were essentially two sort of different versions, interpretations of what America is going to be. Whereas in Russia, kind of you kind of have a generic majority position and then fringe ideas, because more or less uh, even the different parties, be it the, the the Communist Party, which still exists, or the mainstream United Russia Party, or people on the internet with their sort of views of things. Overall, there's a pretty strong agreement amongst uh, Russian speakers about what's good. So, like, say, for example, in America, we have uh, the, the, the Democrats, right, are against guns. The Republicans are generally for guns as a tradition. Or the Democrats are for abortion and the Republicans are uh, against it. Uh, in Russia, you tend to have a lot of different political sort of groups that sort of all agree on the same things. There isn't really a dichotomy among them, if that makes sense. Do you think it's because you went, you went through so much? Because I think that now, 
our whole structure is is reforming here in the United States. And it's, I say it's, because it, really the fringe element has taken over and it's more, and this whole worldwide, there's a whole worldwide domination. Globalists, this reset, this pandemic, it's, they have this thing that they're doing to, to the West. And I believe it's everybody against them and them are the fringe, the brainwashed and the corrupt against everybody mm. else. That's how I classify it. Well, the thing is about being the fringe is in a way is that uh, if you look around you in the United States, uh, roughly maybe a third to a half of people actually agree with this. Uh, Russians usually break down this current sort of moral uh, ideological conflict we're in as some sort of uh, patriots versus mm -hmm. globalists or uh, nationalists versus Atlanticists, something where basically you have uh, this one mindset that's really pushing towards a single sort of unified global way of doing things that seems to be sort of the next uh, evolutionary step of some sort of liberalism versus uh, a system where there's going to be the multipolarity you've probably heard about, uh, where we're going to remain, uh, let's just say, uh, the world won't be uh, so united. It'll be still divided. There'll be different cultures. There's uh, more than uh, one way to skin a cat, which is a weird thing to say. Yeah, so but on. you know, the, the, the nationalism is, is, and this is what Trump was trying to sell, is America first, but we still want to be part of a global community and work, um, work very well with the global community, but we still have to care about our family first. Whereas yeah. globalism is, you no longer have a government. They want to control everything. And they want to say, and they also come out with, you will own nothing and you will be happy. They actually said yeah. that. And well, they want to go around governments. Nobody's elected. They're non-elected officials that define budgets and do everything for you. That's like going way backwards. That's like going back to um, the time of the Romans or something. Yeah, well, if you think about it, well, why were people in Russia so excited when Trump won? There were even parties in Moscow. I went to one. Now, this, the stupid person's normie answer to that is because he was a Russian agent. Uh, yeah, we can get into that. That's uh, silly. What people were excited about was something like that, where Trump, in a sort of more um, <laughs> pro-American-ish way, did actually kind of come out on the side of this multipolar world order. Trump really never said that America has to dominate the world. Trump just wants America to be powerful and independent. And that very much works with the uh, viewpoint uh, from Moscow and Beijing. And so people in Russia were very excited that they were very sure that, well, except me, oh, yeah. I was a bit more pessimistic, that when Trump got into office, things would finally change. And this whole thing, what thing I got the whole reason that Russia and uh, America are uh, so tense right now is because they have completely different sort of uh, ideological missions. The United States or Washington, I should say, wants to continue a multipolar trajectory or monopolar, and Russia wants this multipolar trajectory. And so the hope was that now that America under Trump and Russia are lining up, we can calm things down and go back to a very sane, sane time, start working together, and maybe everything will become like a big yes. sports league. You know what I mean? So there's going to be some winners and That's some losers, but we're all going to kind of agree to play by the rules, and no one's going to shoot the other guy's uh, best quarterback 
in an in an alley, you know, after the game. Right. That's an evolved state of humanity. That's us growing up as human beings. We can both be strong. Your fa- you put your family first. We put yeah. our family first. But we learn how to work together, and we aren't going to be violent with each other. And we want you to be prosperous, but we want to be prosperous too. And we're going to care about our stuff first because that's our responsibility. Yeah. Well, that's just that's like being an, a, a mature human being and evolving well uh that's one way of seeing it but you also have to remember that there are a lot of people in uh, fancy suits who see it as though the triumphs of the west are the only good things that have ever happened in human history and they bring uh goodness to the whole world if you remember when madeline albright uh was uh, uh interviewed and uh, they asked her was it worth the deaths of 500,000 Iraqi children? Now, one thing is, if you could get into the numbers game of how many children were killed in, in, in Iraq, uh, I've seen reports that uh, say uh, only a few hundred thousand people died as a result of the uh, invasion of Iraq. Some say two million, but who cares? We'll just say thousands yeah. and thousands, right? Yeah, thousands and thousands of children died. And she was like, yeah. I know, I remember that interview. Because, you know, because for some people, uh, their view is that anything that gets, this is a view of an extremist, by the way, Anything that gets their system into place is good because in the end, those people in country X will start living better. And uh, it's hard to fight with that view because that's a very tribalistic view. And um, if we'll uh, get to know each other better in the future here, uh, I see that tribalism is actually a very, very extremely deep-rooted part of the human condition that uh, you're going to see play out a lot in politics and a lot in our daily lives if we sort of um, start looking for it. I'll put it that way. I think it's sort of the most underrepresented factor. You know, we understand the economy affects things. We're starting to wake up to the fact there's this thing called geopolitics and geography and spaces that affects things. Ideology does religion and so on. Uh, but uh, people seem to uh, leave tribalism off the radar. I think it's actually very important. Well, Yes. We're very tribal, but the thing that concerns me the most is the want, the need these globalists want to regress. People say it's going forward. I say it's huge regression back to Roman times where they want to rule the whole world and they want everybody to be the same and nobody, I mean, they're forcing their ideals onto everybody and they want to rule the world and they don't want to have to be voted in. They want to be, they place themselves there. And this is what they're they're talking about. And if you look at what the bankers said in um, Jackson Hole, Wyoming, the central bankers, they said, we will determine uh, budgets for countries. There will be no budgets. We will determine everything for mm-hmm. the world. And it will be a digital yeah. currency. They said that if you read their speeches. So they're going towards this. I would think that any rational person would be against that because that's – a 2,000-year regression in human development. Um, I don't know. Well, the thing is um, about uh, Rome. Um, let me ask you. So regression, So you, it's interesting because usually people sort of hail the glory of Rome, and you seem to not like it. Why does Rome bother you so much? Because it was a dictatorship you... based on a ruling elite that's there from a bloodline. They just are born into it. The uh-huh. people have no say. It's a brutal dictatorship. And they rule, it's their way or the highway, and people have no freedom. That's what I'm talking about. Well, the, I, I, oh boy. Um, let me put it this way. If we, the problem is I'm not a Roman historian, 
but I can say that th there are some things we definitely need to, to, to learn from Rome, and I, I can kind of see where you're coming from. The first thing is that I believe the first laws written in Rome were written on, I think, 12 plates or something, and eventually the whole idea of lawyers came from ancient Rome because the law became so big and so convoluted and contradictory, like it is in America right now, that that's where the birth of lawyers came from, because they needed people who were these super experts in law, this was before computers, uh, to really just even try to get a grasp of what the law actually was. The Roman law was, was that if you can get away with it, then it's legal. As long as the people don't know and they consent, it's legal. Law has evolved well, huge that since kind then. of a, that kind of a, applies to everyone. I'm not saying Roman law. I'm saying the the quantity of laws. So I'm saying in one way that was a huge problem in Rome. Yeah, they that started they it. Yep. Mm -hmm. I don't mean to cut you off. I was going to say they started maybe the the legal field, but it's evolved. I mean, people know what is right and wrong, and and that going back to the way it was in Rome is really, uh, it was before the Magna Carta, right? The Magna Carta was a huge evolution in humanity. And moving towards this, you know, rights of the individuals to be um, liberty and justice and what's uh, good and bad and that stuff, that wasn't there. That was more of a dictatorship. We are, might makes right, and you guys are our subjects. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh... So I think we're kind of going a little bit uh, separating here. But then let's get back to then uh, Russia, which is my main topic. So the interesting philosophical thing. You know, there was, a, but the thing is here, there's never been a Magna Carta. Uh, you know what I mean? And he, so here, everything has always been really uh, different in that sense. So the Magna Carta sort of led into this uh, idea of liberty. It really also led into the idea of property rights. Uh, then again, like the first Russian laws that were recorded, uh, are have to do also with property rights, which is interesting, but about uh, basically um, uh, what's that called? Inheritance. There you go. That was the yep, yep. the big the big thing there. But overall, one of the interesting things about Russia is that it's really never happened. Russians have really never been uh, uh, been able to find these great documents that they believe in, other than the Bible. Because in the Soviet Union, despite its short history, the, the Constitution there was rewritten four times, and I don't mean amended. I mean, rewritten, <laughs> you know what I mean? Before that, there was no constitution. And then the current constitution, which was, I believe, finished in 1993, was written by people who didn't seem too proud to sign it. There was no uh, John Hancock of the uh, modern uh, Russian system here. And so the modern constitution is kind of mm, 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 not exactly widely accepted. I'll put it that way. Uh, the referendum that happened last year helped, but uh, so you have to, that's one thing about Russia is it's sort of a non-constitutional society. Interesting. Okay, so what is the Bible, the basis of of, constitu of the Russian people's backbone? I mean, how, it's so different than the United States. So that's the goal here is to try to get my head around and the listeners head around how different Russia society really is. Yeah. Well, uh, if you go back uh, about a thousand years ago-ish, I think a thousand plus already, uh, that was when uh, the Grand Pr Prince uh, Vladimir uh, made the choice to embrace Eastern Orthodox Christianity as the true faith. Uh, there, the, He was the third ruler from the uh, Rurik dynasty, 
Um, Rurik was the uh, first sort of uh, Russian leader that we know about, <laughs> um, uh, going all the way back when. It's very uh, assumed that maybe he was like from Sweden or Norway, that he was some sort of uh, a Viking-type gentleman, because uh, back then uh, the rivers were pretty open to uh, that type of uh, movement of uh, Vikings and all that. But anyways, uh, long story short, uh, his grandson or great-grandson, sometimes my memory doesn't serve me, was the one who chose to make Russia Eastern Orthodox, and that's what brought ideas of law, ideas of uh, morality and justice, reading, writing, uh, because a lot of Russian history was lost because Russians were uh, illiterate until about, you know, until the acceptance of Christianity near, about, near the end of the uh, first millennium there. So, yeah, it really sort of changed everything. And from that, uh, Russian law really evolved more from, I would say, Roman roots, which uh, technically it's still more on the Roman side of law, definitely more so than common law as it is today. But overall, you know, the, the, the spirit of things was really founded on uh, uh, Christianity as the core of everything, not, not secular law. Secularism came abruptly like a sledgehammer in 1917, 1918. Yeah, because that's not what you guys really were about. It was okay. So let's talk about mm. that. You, you're probably the most Christian country in the world right now, and yeah. But under communism, communism is such that religion doesn't have a place. It was illegal. So how yeah. really was that when you're such a Christian nation? What happened there? I mean, they were forced out of their religion. Well, here's the thing. This is actually one of the big things in Russia that I'll say there is no definitive answer, but there are different theories. Theory number one is that the revolutionaries, you know, the communist revolutionaries, were mostly non-Russians. Uh, there's always these stories that a lot of the people who are tortured during the uh, Russian Revolution, who lived through the torture, claim that the people doing the torture had accents. So a lot of times oh. Russians themselves will blame uh, people from the uh, Baltic nations. That would be Estonia, uh, Lithuania, Latvia. No, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, uh, as they go up from north to south, uh, or other different sort of ethnic minorities for it. Or for, in fact, like the um, famous, one of the symbols of the toppling of the Soviet Union was when the statue of uh, Dzerzhinsky was pulled down. Dzerzhinsky wasn't technically Russian. Uh, neither was Trotsky, for example. So uh, there's that theory of why it happened was because it was outsiders who didn't believe in orthodoxy. Uh, the anyways. Bolsheviks. Uh, the other one is that from the opposite side, people who in Russia are still pro-socialism, uh, pro-communist. Because remember, uh, Russians referred to the communist period as the socialist period, which is important to note. Okay, They didn't call it the communist period. They still call it the socialist period. Uh, so the uh, sort of uh, socialists of today who see the red period in Russian history as being the best period, uh, they sort of uh, mm -hmm, see it as being maybe necessary or that Russians really didn't believe in religion that much, that Russians just trying to kind of go with the flow of what the majority is doing. It's a collective sort of a collectivist sort of culture. And so whatever's the mainstream, the majority is just going to drift to anyways. And so the basically their argument is, well, it was never really that Christian. And the fact that it's become Christian again, that's just because it's trendy or something and people want to play ball. So that's that's sort of another. No, oh, they're putting their head in the sand. We have the same issue, though. We got that attitude here where they're trying to almost criminalize religion here 
They use the uh, pandemic to shut down churches. So it's those people and that attitude that came here, coming here to the United States to try to create that same sort of situation. You guys got yourself out of it, and now we're finding ourselves fighting yeah. it internally. So what really was it like? I mean, I, I the people were just forced into it, and it wasn't their culture. It wasn't what they were about. Well, yeah. Well, the th the thing of what it was like, it's kind of hard to say because I definitely don't have a personal uh, evidence, but I can tell you that uh, for one thing, one of the big mistakes is that um, from what, again, what people say, what historians say is that within the church, because remember, America has separation of church and state. Russia has symbiosis of church and state. So what does that mean, symbiosis? That means that Russia's had an official chief religion, excluding the communist period, uh, being Eastern Orthodox Christianity, and it worked with the state, but was never allowed to be within the state. And also, uh, due to the um, like the nature of Eastern Orthodoxy, it also forbids itself from getting in the affairs of the state as being sort of separate. So there, there was sort of this idea within the church, for, of, of um, you know, among some people, that throughout all these centuries, you know, the lead, the Tsars have come and gone. There have been just different dynasties. This is just going to be a new type of dynasty. We're going to work with them. Everything's going to be fine. We'll just go with the flow and things will work out like they always have because of this system of symbiosis, which proved for century upon century that this concept allows Eastern Orthodoxy to withstand any sort of political crisis, right? No matter how many times they uh, behead the leader. So they thought that, but it didn't happen. Yeah. <laughs> because one of the key uh, functions, uh, one of the key missions of the uh, uh, Marxists is to destroy religion. It is absolutely um, forbidden. But if you look at the, uh, the, the, the three big political uh, theories that came up uh, during you know, the 1800s, which led into the wars of the 1900s, liberalism, communism, and fascism, uh, to be honest, they were all, were, are uh, all anti-Christian in a way. So uh, that shouldn't be surprising, but uh, the church didn't see it coming. Uh, and that's where it all sort of started. And then uh, during the 1920s and 1930s, there was a lot of propaganda uh, against religion. That uh, the same kind of propaganda that you sort of hear in America with that you know it's 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 dumb. It's this form of controlling you. It's manipulative. It's this, that, and the other. But by the time Stalin did his great purges of 1937, uh, the pendulum kind of started to shift back. And when World War II started, Stalin made a deal with the church that some people actually consider to be the salvation of the church because he restored the patriarchy, not the patriarchy that the liberals talk about. I mean, the position of the patriarch in the uh, Russian uh, church uh, here, which had been disbanded by Peter I, also known as Peter the Great, who is almost never referred to as Peter the Great within Russia. Okay, okay. So, there's, a, there's, but, there's a big but, one. But, you know, they... Uh, yeah, sorry, sorry. That that that, that had a lot of forward. No, 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 no. That's that. okay. But. Now they there was a lot of death, right? And there was a lot of trauma. Oh in, yeah. In Russia. Now Stalin, because of all the trauma and all the death, he kind of threw a bone out there to just heal the people. I'm assuming. And so was the church used as a way to heal people or what? Because that trauma that a whole country went through, when you have that much death, it changes society. So, well, uh, there's a few ones. Let's go the, uh, the ultimate, uh, most pessimistic uh, uh, version of that is the Machiavellian version. During World War II, they needed to keep the country uh, uh, stable because you shouldn't forget that the Germans used this group of people called the Vlasovtsi, 
Uh, they were lead led by this guy called Vlasov, and it was supposedly like the rebirth of the white army that would sort of come back and restore the Tsar. So uh, the, on a pragmatic side, you could say that, well, he did it in order to uh, create bo a more social cohesion in Russia, where it's state secular, but, you know, you can have religion now. We're not going to kill you for it anymore. We're just going to put that in the past. So there's the pragmatic side. Uh, the other side is that since Stalin was studying at a seminary when he was younger, there's more this sort of uh, other side that secretly he really wanted to kind of do the opposite. And that uh, we have to remember that despite the fact that we blame Stalin for everything that happens after Lenin died, uh, he really only got the real reins on power to be that real top dog in 1937. So in some ways, when he wasn't exactly the top dog in a complete dictatorial sense of people obeying him during the revolutionary period, uh, it's hard to it's hard to say. It's it's kind of hard. So to say. you're saying Lenin killed most of the people and Stalin really was there to clean well, it's, it up. It's, it was a mess. Remember, another thing about this is, is, is people pretend like revolution is easy or it's fun or it's clear. I mean, especially when Lenin died, it was it was an absolute mess. Uh, during the 1918 elections in the, the then uh, that would be the Russian. So oh my, I can't I can't remember what it would be in English, but it was pre-Soviet Union thing that was Russia. Uh, you know, there were six parties, <laughs> but pretty soon, within a couple of years, they were down to one party. <laughs> you know what I mean? So uh, things were fast, loose, and very, very brutal. And there was definitely a lot of infighting between people. It wasn't as if Lenin came to power and he was like, okay, everything's stable. I control everything. No, there were definitely people with various different interests, uh, with various different views of things. Um, and most notably, why Stalin uh, maybe won or became more po popular was because Trotsky, uh, this is something we sh should actually use this expression in English. Trotsky said that Russia, or the Soviet Union, or its precursor entity, uh, is going to be the firewood of revolution. Okay, and that's important. That's Within Russia, that is the only Trotsky quote you'll ever hear. Why? Because he wanted to burn Russia like fuel to create a world fire, to create a world revolution. He did not care how many people here had to die, how much Russia had to be destroyed. He had this globalist mission. And uh, obviously... That's why I'm scared of the globalists, by the way, but keep going. Yeah, and that's why you should be, because they, they, they see... The, I'm sure there are plenty of them yes. who see the United States as firewood. Yep. Throw it in, burn it, and let's make some heat. And they do not care. Well, so. I think they want a lot of us to die, and I think that's what's happening right now. Yeah. But that's why this is such an important interview is because you guys did have a lot of people die over there in Russia, and there was a lot of trauma, and it was not what people think. It did not turn into what they wanted it to turn into. It was, just, no. it was just a nightmare. But how did that trauma change the people? Because that's what I'm trying to get at, because... There's nothing that changes a society more than when millions of people die. And yeah. how did that fundamentally change Russian society? Well, the revolution, well, I'll, de I'll definitely put it this way. You can still see sort of the same type of arguing between people who are more pro-communist or more, I'd say, pro-monarchist or pro-Russian uh, empire. There's still a little bit of bickering. But one thing that I think always surprises the U.S. State Department is how hard it's been to create a new revolution in Russia, because I think people have sort of woken up to the scam. 
because if you've ever heard the term color revolution, yes, really the the Russian Revolution was the first color revolution. Its color being red, and in a lot of ways, the revolution of the early 1990s also sort of duped the population because we cannot forget that they had a referendum within the Soviet Union, and 77% of the population said, we're going to keep the Soviet Union alive, we're just going to try to fix it to the best of our ability. That didn't happen. So uh, color revolution here has become mainstream. This is a term that almost everyone has heard and they're aware of, and in some ways it's almost like a vaccine against the next one, because I believe it was in 2010 or 2011 when uh, the uh, Navalny and his other allies uh, tried to do this sort of march on the Kremlin, much like a the way, the, the way things happened in Kiev, the populace didn't go for it. People are just sick of it. And so Russia is very non-revolutionary. Yeah, yeah, that's great. So they, they want, they've grown up in that way and realize that it's not worth it. Um, it's not, it's not no. worth it to kill millions to create a, <laughs> a paradise. That's just not reality. And so they've changed, but they haven't, they haven't changed towards the Magna Carta because they've never had something like that. They've always had either communism or an empire. So they have a different yeah. perspective. That's pretty interesting. Well, uh, the, the, the system uh, in England, you know, medieval England, which is where the Magna Carta comes from, with your serfs and lords and all that, uh, Russia and a lot of places in the world, all over the sort of giant Eurasian landmass, have had similar systems. Yep. You know, and, and until the split with the Roman Catholic Church, uh, you know, Russia had the same religion, even, uh, from the Russian perspective, uh, as people did in, uh, you know, the British Isles. So there were a lot of similarities in that way, but what Russians think is the difference is that England is an island, and it's always been more sea-based, and Russia's been more land-based, and so uh, land-based uh, nations or empires uh, tend to have this uh, traditional streak among them and be uh, less individualistic, less open to, say, trading, uh, and there are definitely some certain hallmarks of these more land empires, but the Magna Carta could have happened here. All the seeds were here, well, except for not being an island. So Russia kind of chose to let it pass, just like the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment really could have happened here. In fact, the Russian elite of that time, who were all French-speaking, uh, really were, you know, ground floor uh, in, in reading the uh, Enlightenment uh, works of, you know, Voltaire and, and all that, what was happening, but still didn't happen here. Okay, well, how does religion then, Christianity, affect Russian culture right now? Is it almost like what the U.S. was in the 50s? But Because mm. we were very much a Christian nation for many decades, and right now we're seeing this attack on Christianity. Is, was, how is it over there? 